If you have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And our text for this morning comes from chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. So we are once again continuing our series on the book of Colossians. Colossians, chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, the sad thing about this passage is that all the new perversions leave out through his blood. The most essential ingredient is left out. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. May God the Holy Spirit grant us the grace to understand the text before us this morning. Last week we began the letter to the Colossians. And we pointed out that it was one of the prison epistles written from Rome by the Apostle Paul somewhere between 60 and 64 AD. We also pointed out that one of the primary aims for writing this epistle was to expose or reveal some of the false teachings prevalent in those days. False teachings which were making their entrance into the local churches. The Apostles' main approach, as we shall see shortly, is to first of all establish or reaffirm sound doctrine. In this case, it is sound doctrine concerning Christ, his deity, his nature, and his works. And then the Apostle proceeds to point out errors of the day. He corrects them and finally presents practical admonitions to the church in light of sound Christian teachings. Also, in last week's message, we noticed that after the Apostle had greeted all the saints and faithful brethren at Colossae, he acknowledged their fruit-bearing brought about by the Spirit of God after the gospel had found an entrance into their hearts. He also gave us that beautiful prayer for the church at Colossae in verses 9 to 13. Number one, that they might be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And number two, 
that they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And number three, that they might increase in the knowledge of God. And number four, that they might be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power so that they might develop patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And then in verse 12, he drew his prayer to a close by giving thanks to the Father for making us, that is, all true Christians born of the Spirit of God, fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. This morning, I would like to continue with the conclusion of that prayer and then go on to the Apostles' exposition of the exaltation and supremacy of Christ. Many of you know of David Hunt, a famous author and a very sound Bible expositor who has now gone home to be with the Lord. But even in his senior years, he still traveled extensively, giving seminars and talks on the inroads that the cults and false religions and the occult have made in the church today. God has been using this very faithful servant to warn the church of God about the deceitfulness of the enemy and how he has managed to to deceive even the very elect. And the question that must surely come to our minds is this. How is it that so many Christians are so easily deceived by so many false teachers? How is that possible? I think we have at least two reasons why this is so. Number one, the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And what that is telling us is that those whom God has approved, who has set up, set aside, selected to be the true shepherds, elders, etc., will be clearly manifested or shown when false teachings creep into the local assemblies. When the local churches experience heresies, and all of them do sooner or later, and when the assembly or church is left in an uproar, in chaotic situations, full of confusion, then those who have been given God's stamp of approval will be able to put down the false teaching through sound doctrine, through the Word of God. And secondly, I believe Christians by nature will not give themselves over to the careful study of the Word of God. They like to leave it to the other man. And before long, 
They allow themselves to be swept away by every wind of doctrine. They become confused, discouraged, and eventually dissatisfied and not able to be fed. Before too long, they start looking for something new, something more exhilarating, something more worldly to get the old engines running again, so to speak. And as a result, they become prime candidates for false teachings, for wolves in sheep's clothing to enter in and to deceive them. Satan can be very persuasive to those who are poorly founded in the scriptures. Well, I guess it was no different in the days of Colossae. Unless the flock of God is constantly being fed, fed on the riches of grace of God, fed on the beauties of the Savior, his deity, his nature, his works, then I suppose it is very easy for the wicked one to sneak in and cause havoc among the Lord's people. And so the Apostle Paul drives home some sound doctrine to establish them more firmly in the faith. In verses 12 to 14, he deals with the principal agent of redemption. God is our Redeemer. We must never forget that. It is God the Father who has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. No Christian, by his own merits, has ever made himself or herself fit for heaven. His good works can never be an equivalent for the eternal rewards of heaven, nor can his heart, if unregenerated, even when it is in the very best state, can ever be fit for the society and employments of heaven. That unrenewed heart, that unregenerated heart, however loving, however refined, can never be adapted to the pure spiritual joys of heaven. And which joys are these? Why, the joys of faith, the joys of the love of God, and the joys of holiness. No heart can ever be rendered fit. No soul can ever be redeemed. No spirit can ever be made alive without the direct supernatural intervention of God himself. And so it is God and God alone who makes us fit for heaven. But that is not all we should be thankful for. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 13 by telling us that it is God the Father who has also delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Dearly beloved, there are two kingdoms, however much we may want to deny it. There is the kingdom of this world whose ruler is Satan. He is the God of this world. And there is the kingdom of God of which the ruler is Christ. 
The kingdom of this world is infested with sin, with error, misery, darkness, and death. But the kingdom of God is holiness, knowledge or light, happiness, and eternal life. But it is God and God alone who is our deliverer. It is God alone who takes the believer and delivers him from the power or the authority of darkness, that is, the kingdom of this world, and translates him or puts him into the kingdom of his dear son. When that wretched sinner who is exposed to the gospel of Christ realizes his sinful, hopeless estate and throws himself completely into the mercy and gracious arms of the loving Savior and trusts solely on the shed blood of Christ to cleanse him from all his sins, then he is at that moment born again, saved, and simultaneously translated into the kingdom of God the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in these verses that it is God who makes us fit to be citizens of heaven. It is God who delivers us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is God who redeems us. There is redemption only through his blood. Whose blood? the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see how beautifully the Apostle Paul arranges his thoughts? All thanks and praise is directed towards God the Father. Why? Because of who he is and what he has done. What has he done? He has made us fit for heaven. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son and he has provided for us redemption in his son through his blood at Calvary's cross. In the next five verses, verses 15 to 19, the Apostle Paul proceeds to reaffirm the doctrines or truths concerning his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we might very appropriately entitle this section The Exaltation or Supremacy of Jesus Christ. And the first point of this theme is number one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. It is Christ who made God known to man he is the very image of the invisible God. John 1.18 tells us, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And then in John 14.8-11, Philip asks the Lord Jesus to show them the Father and that will be enough for them. And Jesus replied, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 
And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. It is Christ who reveals to mankind, to us, the Father's character, which is holy, righteous, just, merciful, gracious, loving, etc. It is Christ who reveals to us the Father's will. In John six thirty nine to 40, we read, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day. And it is Christ who reveals to us God's infinite purpose and plan for the world. John three fourteen to 18 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And it is Christ who reveals to us God's method of salvation. John fourteen six says, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John five twenty four says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Then we read in John 5, verses 37 to 40, And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word dwelling or abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me, that ye might have life. Yes, Jesus Christ is the very image, the exact representation of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
firstborn in the sense of importance or rank, rather than the first to be born. In scripture, the birthright of the firstborn always carries with it a double portion to the inheritance. The firstborn is entitled to a special status. He had a preeminence, and that is what the Father has given to the Son, the preeminence above all living things. Why does Christ have this preeminence? The Apostle Paul continues to build his theme with the second point, which is Christ is the Creator. Verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And in John 1, 3, the scripture confirms Christ as creator. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We sometimes fail to appreciate, even as Christians, the full significance and impact of these words and the meaning of the word to create. The dictionary defines in its primary sense create to mean to cause to come into existence and to originate. That is to make something out of nothing. When you have nothing to start with and you make something out of nothing, that is creation. Do you know anyone in this universe other than Jesus Christ who can do that? Unfortunately, today, we have almost destroyed the entire meaning of this word create. It has taken on extended meanings as most words do. It includes now the idea of taking something and organizing it, refining it, improving it, and then calling it a creation. An artist is said to create a picture. He starts off with a blank canvas, some paints, and an idea, and puts it all together and calls it his creation. Well, let's see him just start off with a thought, which, by the way, is not original, and create a painting on canvas without the canvas in oil colors, but without the paint or any other supplies. He can't. It can't be done. No one can do that. But God can, and he did because he alone has this capacity. He alone is creator, and that gives him preeminence. It separates him from all other, all other forms of life. Christ alone is able to create. He created all things that are in this invisible heaven and the visible heaven. 
the planets, the stars, the moons, the asteroids, the meteors, in short, the universe. He created all things that are in the earth, the trees, grass, vegetation, animals, fish, insects, bacteria, man, even the tiny atoms and molecules of all life forms. These are all visible. But we are told that he created all the invisible things in heaven and in earth as well. What invisible things? Why, angels, spirit beings, demons, and the spirit world and all that it entails. There is an invisible heaven where God resides and where his redeemed will go to be with him one day. And there is an invisible hell which was created for the angels that sinned and fell from grace. And it is the place in which all the lost will one day spend eternity. All these invisible things were created by Christ. All thrones, whether they be in earth or in heaven, all powers, authorities, and dominions, were also created by him. Christ Jesus was the creator of all things. And why were all these things created? They were created for him. They were created for his glory. The universe was built by Christ to be his own property, to be the theater on which he would accomplish his purposes and display his perfections. And particularly, the earth was made by the Son of God to be the place where he would become incarnate and demonstrate the wonders of his redeeming love. This passage, therefore taken in its primary sense, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt the divinity and sovereignty of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God the Son, completely divine, completely God, completely sovereign. This passage includes his influence universally from the tiniest molecule or atom to the largest star in the universe. He created them all and he knows them all by name. That is who our Savior is. This now brings us to the third reason for Christ's supremacy. Number three, Christ is the eternal Son of God. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. It only makes sense that since Christ, the Son of God, created all things, he must have existed before he created all these things, which makes him eternal, always existing. The Bible starts off with, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What beginning? Why, before anything was ever created before the first molecule was ever formed by God, before the first planet or star was called into existence, God was. The Bible nowhere 
tries to prove the existence of God, but rather starts off with the fact that God is and does. The second part of the verse says, by him all things consist. That is, everything by him, by Christ, is sustained or held together. Their existence, their order, their arrangement is contained by his power. Those little electrons and protons inside those minuscule atoms are all held together by Christ. Those immense planets and stars dare not depart from their orbits without his consent. The air on this planet is invisibly contained by his holding power, while all forms of life depend upon his sustenance for life. What wisdom, what power, what sovereignty, what a savior. And the fourth point which the Apostle Paul makes is that Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18. It is only fitting that the eternal Son of God, the creator of this majestic universe, would also be the head of the church, that spiritual body of believers worldwide through all the ages. He who created it is also head of it. He is the fountain of authority and power and commences everything that is designed to uphold the order of the universe and to save the world. The scripture knows nothing of men being the head of the church. That heretical teaching by the Roman Catholic Church that the Pope is the head of the church robs Christ of his honor and his glory. The Bible mentions no such pope, nor any such hierarchy in the church. Let men teach what they want, but they shall not change the reality of the fact that Christ alone is the head of his church. We are told in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. This is the true church of believers. Christ is the one who spiritually baptizes the believer. Christ baptizes the believer in the Holy Spirit and Christ baptizes the believer onto himself, onto his mystical body, the church. Yes, we baptize on the earth. We baptize true believers in water symbolically onto the death and resurrection of our Lord. But it is only a symbolic gesture upon profession of our faith to represent the world that a true spiritual baptism has already taken place. But unless we have been spiritually reborn, then we can never be part of the church, no matter how steeped we may be in religious rituals. And he who is the head of the church alone has the right to govern it, to dictate it, its precepts and its ordinances as revealed in the word of God. 
And since he is the head of the church, he is also the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things he might have the preeminence. He was the first to rise from the dead, to die no more, and the resurrection of all who trust in him depends on Jesus Christ. John 5.25 tells us, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And finally, the fifth and last point is in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That in him should all fullness dwell. That in Jesus Christ, the Godhead dwells in its fullness. Jesus Christ is supreme and preeminent in and above all things because he is fully God. In him all fullness dwells. In Christ Jesus we have the fullness of grace readily available to us. Do we find ourselves in trial, in persecution, in affliction? Then his grace is sufficient for all our needs. In him dwells the fullness of merit. In him dwells the fullness of righteousness and strength and forgiveness. Does the wicked one ever bring doubts and accusations to our standing? Does the flesh ever wish to have a greater role in our salvation? Nay, says the word of God. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We can say all that God is, Christ is. And in knowing Christ, we know God because he, Christ Jesus, has fully manifested him. Such is the supremacy and preeminence of our Savior, says the Apostle Paul. One, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Two, Christ is the creator of all things. Three, Christ is the eternal Son of God. Four, Christ is the head of the church. And five, in Christ dwells the fullness of the God, Godhead bodily. That, my dearly beloved, is our Savior. Well, as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you all this. Do you know Christ as your Savior and Lord? And if you do, do you give him the preeminence in your life? If not, why not? And if perchance you do not know him as your Savior, won't you turn to him now 
and repent of your sins while there is still yet time. The Bible clearly tells us in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for thy word, and especially this book on Colossians which the Apostle Paul so clearly outlines for us, the supremacy and preeminence of our blessed Savior. We pray that as we continue to meditate upon him and his loveliness, that we will be drawn closer to him, knowing his heart better and better each day. Part us now with thy blessing, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, May it please thee once again to reunite us around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it always in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.